Hey guys, what's up? It is Campfire Chronicle times. Best time of the year. I hope you're all healthy, safe, and well today. And of course, I hope that continues past this podcast. So there's a few things that... um have been happening that I kind of want to just chat about because, you know, why not? Chatting is fun. Um, But first, thank you so much to everybody who comes and watch this stream because I am so close to hitting affiliate and you don't know, like, everything that I've been going through recently. You don't know how awesome that feels to be this close. Um... So I just want to thank everybody who watches me, everybody who hangs out, everybody who lurks. Like, I I don't really have words to just tell you how much I appreciate that. Um, So thank you. Thank you so much. So one of the big things that um, has been happening in Texas, and I'm going to talk a little bit about where I live right now because... I feel like a lot of it is just kind of getting brushed under the rug. And I'm in a bunch of of groups to talk about things like this and just debate and figure out a way to, I guess, make this state better. Um, But right now, uh, we are still experiencing problems from the February... um, the February storm. So for anybody who didn't see... Texas experienced one of the worst winters um, that we've had in years, 50 years, they said. Um, We had about six inches to a foot of snow back in February, and it essentially shut down our power grid. Now, for those of you who don't know, Texas prides itself on being separate from the national grid, the national electric grid, um, stating that, you know, it's they can take care of their own. They don't need federal regulations to run a power grid. And that power grid is run by a company called ERCOT. Now, because the grid is not federally regulated, it doesn't do such things as winterizing gas lines, winterizing windmills, Uh, You know, things that have been put in place on the national grid so that, you know, the rest of the country doesn't experience outages like we did in February. Um, And because of that, the gas lines froze. The windmills um, or the wind turbines, they froze temporarily. And most of Texas was without power from anywhere from two days to four days. I was without power myself for about two and a half, three days straight. And it was some of the coldest temperatures that we had experienced. And there was no food anywhere. Uh, You couldn't buy food because the power was out for pretty much all the grocery stores. Um, There was a few places that had power and they were cleaned out. When I tell you there wasn't even napkins for sale, I am not joking. People were heading to 7-Elevens, gas stations that had power, and buying out all their hot water to then find out that the hot water they took had to be essentially dumped because even boiling it wasn't getting rid of the, you know, the germs and everything that are that were in it, um, at, or at least keeping it at those temperatures that they kept it at wasn't the the recommended temperature to have it at before all the uh, bacteria was killed in the water. So me and my family drove around. We used my van to charge devices. Um, I have horrible service where I live, so I couldn't get in contact with anyone. Um, It was awful. It was probably one of the worst times in Texas for me since I moved down here. And needless to say, um, ERCOT was nowhere to be found. All they said was conserve energy. Don't plug stuff in. Um, There's going to be rolling blackouts. We don't have the energy in the power grid to supply electricity to the majority of the state. Now, come to find out, 
the richer areas, such as uh, in San Antonio, like the Stone Oak area, which is on the north side of San Antonio, they had no issues with power. None. And they didn't lose power for the entire time that there was no power. However, it came at a price. The governor essentially allowed ERCOT, in order to make up for lost profits, he allowed them to charge consumers for the increased cost because the demand was high for electricity. Capitalism, right? So, ERCOT charged whatever they felt like. I mean, normally, like, electricity is in, like, the pennies per kilowatt hour. It was increasing to sometimes, like, a dollar, three dollars. My aunt got a $3,000 electric bill, and luckily... Um, in San Antonio, there's only one company that you can get electricity through, it's City Public Service. And luckily, they were they handled it better, I would say. I didn't have an astronomical bill after that month. I got a little bit of a credit because I was, out, was without power for a few days. Um, but my aunts, they were, they were not so lucky. Many Texans lost water access. Many Texans obviously had no power. There were some that died in that storm. Um, and come to find out the reason why this all happened, aside from it not being federally regulated for the grid, was also in partly the fault of the Public Utilities Commission, to which the governor appoints the people who are supposed to be monitoring ERCOT's business practices. One of them being that ERCOT's representatives are supposed to live in the state of texas none of them do none of the higher-ups do so they didn't even have to experience what we were going through and of course the news went crazy when ted cruz left texas to go uh escort his wife and children to cancun and then proceeded to throw them under the bus um and said Basically, like, I just, you know, the kids didn't want to be in the house and it was cold. And, you know, yeah, it was cold. Luckily, my New Yorker kicked in and we were able to survive. We burned whatever wood we had. Friends reached out, sent wood, sent water, things that we needed. And, uh, you know, that was just a really rough time. That was a really rough time in, in Texas life down here. So flash forward to now. It's June. We get an email stating that, once again, the power grid cannot handle the demand. And ERCOT is basically asking Texans to keep your AC at 78. Mind you, today it was 110 degrees. That's without the heat index. Keep your AC at 78 degrees and don't have any other appliances plugged in. Yeah, that's what they suggested. And they said, if you don't comply with this, we're going to have to do rolling blackouts again. And I just want to I want to point out how crazy it is that there is no accountability that has been put placed on ERCOT. ERCOT doesn't care that we have suffered. You know, we suffered through that winter storm. And now I just opened my electric bill. And it's $645. A friend of mine who lives in the Stone Oak area, their electric bill, brand new house, should be well insulated, should be able to take, you know, the AC system should be able to take hotter temperatures. His bill was $480. Prices of electricity in Texas are being affected directly from having a power grid that is not regulated by the federal government. And I, you know... I'm not going to say trust the government blindly. That's not what I'm saying here. However, there is a reason why things need to be regulated. Had we not had, you know, with the storm that we had, if we had regulations placed that we had to winterize our pipes, we had to winterize the, the turbines, I don't think we would have been in the situation that we are in right now. Hey, Ducky, what's up? Thanks for stopping by. I'm venting my frustration at ERCOT and the electrical 
grid problem we are experiencing here in Texas right now. Just talking a little bit about super high electric bills um, and the failure of our our government on actually uh, holding people accountable, which um, seems to be a consistent trend in this state, I would say. Um, but anyway, so, you know, I've got a $645 electric bill that I'm probably just going to, you know, donate some organs on the black market to pay. And my friend has the $480 bill and they're just charging whatever they want for electricity right now. So, um, that is, that is kind of what we're going through (laughs) at the moment. The, um, I, I don't really see an end in sight considering that our governor felt that, putting a $250 million down payment on the border wall was priority over the fact that Texans are having electric bills that are four times their normal amount. That's a little bit cringeworthy if you ask me, but hey, priorities, am I right? (laughs) Um, So yeah, so that's, that's kind of what's going on here. You know, I'd love to have a discussion as far as utilities are concerned because I truly believe that you know I was talking with my friend and um, my husband about this why are utilities not free we are we are living in 2021 electricity is no longer a luxury electricity is a necessity and when you talk about necessities water electricity sometimes even you know transportation public transportation for sure why are these items something that needs to be charged for. I think about this a lot. And do I have a solution that could make these free? (sighs) Maybe. I don't know. I'm not the smartest person in the world. And you're right, Ducky. Utilities, Wi-Fi should be free. Wi-Fi especially because, you know, people love to say, oh, go get a job. It's so easy to go get a job. If you don't have access to Wi-Fi, how are you going to look for a job? It is not, it is not boomer age. I go down to, you know, ABC bank, ask for an application on paper and fill it out there. That's not how any place works anymore. It's all online. It's all electronic. And that's why I love public libraries because, hey, first of all, I love books. I, you know, I write them. So I love books. I love sitting in there and learning and experiencing things, but that's why I love public libraries because you can go and use computers. However, however, if you are living in America now and you're in a house and let's say hypothetically you lose your job and you already have a house and you're worried about paying bills, Wi-Fi is not something that is a luxury anymore. Like you need Wi-Fi to go and apply to new jobs. That's a fact. We got all these boomers in government and they don't know how anything works anymore. Amen to that. And our governor in Texas specifically is a millionaire and is so out of touch with the everyday struggles of, of just, you know, the middle class and below. He... And that is a huge problem that boomers who are generations, you know, behind on a lot of things, my, my dad included, he's a boomer. They don't understand that these, these things should be free utilities, water, uh, friggin' Wi-Fi, like, and people want to knock on things like that and call it socialism. I mean, hell yeah. Like I think socialized medicine should be a thing. How, how can you tell me that healthcare is a product? What, can you hold healthcare in your hand? Does it increase in value? No. Healthcare is just a sham, in my opinion. Everybody should be able to walk into a hospital and not worry about getting sick and how am I going to pay for this? You know, I hear it way too many times where... There, you know, there was a story I I listened to on TikTok of a girl's mother and she was having chest pains and went to the ER and the ER was like, you know, what are your symptoms? Asking her questions. And she was like, I have this pain in my chest. I don't know what it is. I think I might be having a heart attack. Um, 
she told them straight up, I don't have insurance. And essentially, the ER sent her back home. And she died that night from an aneurysm in her aorta. That's American healthcare. My, my two sons go to um, ABA therapy for, their, for autism. And their therapy is 8.30 to 4.30, Monday through Friday. That therapy costs $6,000 a week per kid. Per kid. And I think that, that that's fair. You know, I think it's fair to charge that because that is a lot of work. And my, my, both my children have their own challenges. But imagine if that was that $6,000, even with the cruddy insurance I have, imagine if I had to pay that out of pocket, my kids would never get help. And then my kids, when they got older would be burdens on society because they never received the help that they needed. I am grateful I have insurance that will cover this and the center that they go to is is phenomenal and they have payment plan programs and they have programs where you don't even have to pay anything out of pocket to get your kid the help they need so they get it they understand ABA therapy is not cheap and I, I look to countries that do have some form of socialized medicine and I've they're just better off. Their their overall health is better off. And to say that healthcare isn't a human right means you don't really care about people so much. You care about yourself. You care about your own interests. And that's not how the world works. That's my rant. <laughs> and I agree, Ducky. I think more millennials do need to be in politics. I wish that I had the the guts or the the oomph to go out and do that and i am trying to work locally within san antonio to tra to change my state because don't get me wrong you know texas looks red when you see it on the map during elections it looks red but it's actually more purple like a darker purple like there's more blue um but the amount of gerrymandering and the amount of voter suppression here is unreal. And it runs deep. A Democratic government representative has not been elected um, since Jimmy Carter. And that's just wild. The whole state needs, needs a revamp. And, you know, it's I, I feel like I'm watching in real time this state deteriorate with the electrical grid issues, the, I mean, unfortunately they, um, passed a heartbeat bill here, um, restricting women's rights to abortions. Uh, and it's none of my business what other women do. I don't know why our government is so obsessed with other women's wombs. I, I don't get it. Um, you know, our governor gets on Twitter and Facebook and says he's all for, um, you know, he, he wants small government, not big government, yet he literally is reaching his hand into women's business, women's health issues, and, like, saying, no, you can't do that. And to see the picture of him and all these white males and maybe, like, three white females sitting next to him as he signs this bill into law while he's allowing children to die in the state's hands in foster care, 23 children to be exact, is beyond me. He's super pro-life. Makes sense. Makes sense. Absolutely. We do need some type of a revolution to, to make changes. Um, I read this op-ed about the new restrictive abortion laws being about getting a larger future workforce because our generation isn't having as many kids. Absolutely. I am, I am convinced. Um, I actually, I, I follow a, another uh, creator on TikTok, and they brought this exact point up, Ducky, um, that the reason for these abortion laws is because of capitalism, because capitalism is failing as we, as we speak. Uh, the, the labor shortage is not a labor shortage. It's finally people saying, I deserve better. 
And now capitalism is literally folding in on itself. And, I, you know, I do, I get it. They're worried about the workforce. I mean, I've got three kids. It's not all millennials, but I understand that the birth rate is, is decreasing. Totally get it. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's crazy to me that, um, it's crazy to watch capitalism fail. Like in real time, it's, it's wild. And I think about this daily because, you know, I think about it because I, I do have three kids and I wonder what world they're going to be living in. I wonder if there's going to be empathetic people towards their own disabilities. I wonder if they're going to be able to, you know, to live successfully. I, I worry about these things. Hey, Trilena, what's up? But I do, I do really agree that the abortion bans and things like that are based in capitalism, them, like just in capitalistic values and not in human rights values, women's health values. I don't think that that's even on the table when they have these discussions because there are instances such as my governor who knew about abuse in foster care homes and as a result, 23 children died. And, you know, he didn't even show up to the hearing. He sent representatives for him. And it was, it was something he knew about. You don't see him talking about that on Facebook. But he sure does have time to go take a picture for his abortion ban. It's just, you know, things like that need to change. And I'm not, you know... I, I always get I always get talked down to on this because people see me have kids and they think, oh my gosh, you're going to teach your kids this. I, you know, damn well I'm going to teach my kids. It's none of anybody's business what somebody else does with their body. It's not their business. You do what you can to help. You know, I, I really hope in the future I am able to adopt because I want to get kids out of the system in this state. I feel horrible reading about the instances of abuse that children are still going through. Um, and I want to make changes to how our, our state and our country views uh, quality of human life. I think that, I think it's just not fair to, it's not fair to capitalize or, or make things about money when it's somebody's life that you're playing with. Honestly, empathy is a learned trait and we need to teach our kids that. I think so. Anyway, I, th I do think empathy is a learned trait. Um, you know, I, I, I learned a lot on TikTok. I'm not even going to lie to you. TikTok has been like this awesome source of information. And I follow a guy who actually has narcissistic personality disorder. Who knew that that was like an actual diagnosis? And he talks about the difference, um, the different struggles that he goes through being a narcissist and recognizing that he's a narcissist. And I do believe that it is nature versus nurture. Um, or what, what I think that's the saying, right? And I do believe if you teach your kids that, you know, hitting somebody else is wrong, or if somebody else is struggling, it is none of your business to wonder why they're struggling, but just to help them. I think that our world would be a much better place. And I think we as a society would be in a much better place. Um, there's so much judgment out there and it's just detrimental to our society. I mean, this, this turmoil that's within the United States right now, I truly believe is a result of just generations of emotional like emotional uh, smothering, like not, not like good emotion, like teaching emotions or teaching empathy, but like smothering them so that you're not supposed to feel what you feel. And I really do think that if we teach our kids, if you have kids or if you teach your nieces, nephews, friends, family, if you teach them to just care about a person, doesn't matter what they're going to, doesn't matter in their reasons. You don't have to understand 
100% what they're doing and why they're doing it. But if you just teach them to feel empathy towards others, I do really believe that that'll fix the issues that we see today. You know, um, I just, I see, I see so much hate and I see so much anger in a good chunk of America. Um, it does give me, um, a little bit of anxiety as far as like looking forward in the future because I do have kids. Um, but I, I have hope that things can change and I'm going to do everything I can in my state to make things better for my kids in the future. And that's where we all got to start. I mean, you got to start at your, at the roots and work your way up. Um, to raise a kid, you have to find balance between teaching them to be good, but at the same time teaching them to be strong for themselves. And not all people have that. I agree. Most failure people come from bad parenting. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, I talk a lot about uh, my own upbringing. I haven't really mentioned a lot of it here. Um, but just a little backstory. Um, my mother passed away unexpectedly when I was three. And my oldest sisters, um, my middle or my middle sister was six and my oldest sister was eight. Um, and my dad did not handle it well. I mean, I don't think I would handle it very well either, if I'm being perfectly honest. Um, but I was mostly raised by my grandmother. Now, you want to talk about generational differences. My grandmother was born in the 30s. Um, she was born in Puerto Rico and moved to New York maybe when she was, I don't know, 17, 18. I have no clue. And she probably doesn't remember now. She has dementia now. So, um, but I was raised by her and my grandfather. Um, and we talk about, like, I always joke about my own trauma because, uh, it's a defense mechanism. <laughs> so, you know, my grandma used to have the chancla and she used to wear her belt around her neck. And I never really got to the point where she would have to use it. Um, but just think about that. You know, uh, I lived my life fearing the people that I loved. And my father was way worse with with all of that. Hey, Lisa, what's up? Um, but my father was much worse when it came to um, disciplining and they talk about, you know, everybody loves to say, um, that, you know, oh, well I, you know, I was spanked and I turned out fine and it just, you know, okay. Yeah. Like you're functioning, you're a human adult, but let's just, let's just look at it from the perspective of how many people do you feel like you need to people please to make them happy? Um, do you get anxious when people yell? That's one of the things, like, a trigger for me is when people start raising their voice. I, I rarely, rarely raise my voice, even at my kids. And they drive me nuts. They drive me nuts. Don't get me wrong. But I've had to unlearn everything that I learned growing up. You know, when I didn't comply, I was beat. I was whooped. I mean, if my father was a guest on this show, which he will never be, but if he was... He would tell you all about the time that we were in the Alamo in San Antonio when I was five years old and he beat me in public and so bad to the point that somebody, a stranger came over and asked him to stop. And he told the woman, do you want to be next? Like the fact that the fact that I, and like semi-normal, it's like beyond me because my dad was just not normal. And it gets passed down, you know, like that, that gets passed down from generations. Cause like his parents, you know, you weren't allowed to talk about your emotions. You weren't allowed to be sad. You, you know, his, his dad, you know, my grandfather, rest in peace. He, um, apparently when my dad was younger, he didn't like eggs. He still doesn't like eggs to this day, or at least the way that the way my grandfather made eggs and my grandfather cooked him breakfast and his eggs were kind of runny and my dad got sick and, and threw up the eggs and my grandfather forced him to eat it. 
and like to grow up like and that was like not a not a once in once in a while like thing that happened that was pretty regular that was the, that was their parenting strategy was to force them to do things they didn't want to do um i can't talk about that kind of stuff because i had both my parents and they were really good i only got spanked when i did something really wrong i mean i'm not gonna you know trilena i'm not gonna judge how other people chose to parent like i how i look at it is that you parent how you f see fit unless you are being physically abusive to your kids like if you're being a physical abuser then you you don't deserve kids but i do think that there's a way that we can parent without doing that and i've been doing i've been working through things that were taught to me when I was a kid, you know, discipline and whatnot. And I've been working through them, reading, reading research and, and studies to find out what's the best way to parent so that this way I don't raise kids who have anxiety like I do, who have depression issues, who have, um, you know, just overall, like whenever I hear somebody start yelling, I, it, it like flips a switch in my head. You know, I don't want my kids to have to struggle through that. And, they're both autistic, you know, two out of the three anyway. And I don't, they already have their own struggles and I don't need to be contributing to it. Um, and that's really hard for my, my dad to understand is that I'm not going to parent the way he did. And my, my parent, my parent, my dad probably wasn't a good parent like yours were. Um, there's, I could go on for, for days about the things that he did to me and the things that he expected of me at you know six years old um and I just want to I want to make the world a better place by changing and breaking generational trauma and changing the you know ruts that we're all stuck in worldwide and if I can do that from this house in San Antonio and make change in this state that I'm in I will do it I will work my ass off to do it and that is that is my main goal. And I had this epiphany, um, you know, like last year, right at the end of the year, I was like, I think this is what I want to do. I want to make sure that everybody gets an equal opportunity to have a good life. How do I do that? And, you know, I don't really have a plan because I don't like plans. I like to just figure stuff out as I go. Um, and the harder I work towards it, the better I feel. And I feel like, you know, I want to, I feel like I'm going to leave an impact and, you know, I think about, um, like Ellen DeGeneres, right? She always says, be kind. And that's such a generic statement, right? But it, it, it really is true. Um, be kind to people, teach your kids kindness. And you may not, you know, your kids may not understand everything that somebody else is going through, but as long as you could teach them empathy, I think that we can restructure what our society believes is normal right now. Um, oh, tell me no and just not my behavior because it's bad. Once I grow up and learn to speak with them instead of screaming. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally get that, Trilena. I, I totally do. Um, <laughs> heal the word of like in a better place. Hell yeah. Amen. But, you know, I just, that, that, that's just, you know, I can't believe I, I stemmed that from, you know, ERCOT and the electrical grid back down to this just teaching your kids to be empathetic uh because at the end of the day i think that if you teach your children to be empathetic and express their emotions in a healthy way because like i sure didn't um i think that if you teach them that you will have no like no more of the issues that we're having right now with you know as people like to call it keyboard warriors right arguing with you saying some weird off the wall shit i don't think that that will happen anymore because people will be able to see other people's perspectives and have civil discourse over it um and in turn will hopefully change the way our society views each other and fix these issues that capitalism has kind of broken down and and messed up in my opinion i don't know don't come for me don't black bag me and throw me in a cell because I'm saying that we should have socialized utilities and socialized healthcare. But it's just, you know, this is what this podcast is about is just talking through things that 
I feel are important to me and and talking, you know, like Charlena, you have a different perspective. I love it. Ducky, all of you, like I, that's what I want to hear. I want to hear other people's perspectives so that we can be more connected. You know, Campfire Chronicles started because I wanted to connect people through stories. And you know, that's what I do as a writer is I write books for other people to relate to things that maybe characters are going through bad management so be careful with that we'll see you know and i i can understand that um i do think that um there are there, like you said there's there's governments who may not handle it correctly and i don't have a solution for everything um but i think that as a society our generation could make it better and that's what I hope because I want my kids to not have to worry about, you know, oh, man, do I have to sacrifice, I don't know, this payment so that I can make this payment for health care when, you know, health care could be included in our taxes. Something that you wouldn't have to come out of pocket for. I just I think about this a lot because, you know, now that I'm a parent. I don't want to see my kids struggle. I don't want them to struggle like I struggle because I struggle quite a bit more than I want to admit. And I don't want my kids to have to go through what I went through. And I think that's kind of the, I think that's part of the, of just, you know, growing up and becoming a parent is that you don't want your, your, your kids to go through what you went through. Um, so I hope that I can make changes in my community first that will eventually spread to other communities that will be for the betterment of society. Um, and I, you know, maybe this podcast will be it. Maybe this podcast will come up with some great idea that we can fix all the problems in the world or at least some of them. It's a start, right? I'm, I hope anyway. Um, I think there is a big shift coming. I think there was a big shift coming. Eyes are being open. Curses. Yeah. I, I, I was just, uh, I was just reading something that said like every country, every 250 years, uh, goes through like a big change. And I think that what's going on right now in America, at least in, in the U S is that shift because it's been about, it's been about that amount of time, 200 years, roughly, Somewhere in there. It's been about 250 years since the revolution. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't, I'm not one for conspiracy theories or anything. I don't think this was planned. Uh, but I think it's time that we reevaluate what our, our priorities are as a country. Um, I want to make private again and get rid of all the bad people to start from zero. Starting from scratch is important. Um, I, I agree. And that's why I think every country goes through turmoil, um, you know, after a certain amount of time, because once things get, um, not complacent, what am I, what's the, once they get like flat or like, you know, there's not a lot of movement between middle class, lower class, upper class. Um, I do think that's where these shifts kind of start from. Um, I was, I was reading an article that said um, Jeff Bezos was about to be a trillionaire. Like he's on the verge of becoming a trillionaire. And then there was an article a few months back uh, that talked about how he had made a statement saying that, oh yeah, companies should pay all their fair shares in taxes. But meanwhile, he wasn't stagnant. That's the word. Stagnant. That's it. Um, but, you know, Jeff Bezos said that he believes everybody should have... Um, that every, everybody should have to pay their fair share in taxes, including big corporations. Yet, um, you know, that it kind of falls flat for me because he did get a lot of tax breaks and made so much money last year um, during the pandemic, yet didn't pay hardly any taxes. It's, you know, there's such a, you know, here anyway, uh, Trilena is, there's not much movement. We don't have movement between middle class, lower class. Like, you know, we, we just kind of, 
there there are people I'm sure who do move up, but the majority of our wealth is amongst a few people. And um it's causing so much imbalance in you know the middle and lower class incomes or families that I think that's why there's so much turmoil in our country in general. Um, and, you know, I worry for the future because, you know, Charlena, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. I don't know if this is going to be all for the good. I don't know. Um, I don't know if this revolution that may happen in the future is, is going to fix things. It might make it worse. Um, but I hope... I hope it makes it better, you know, for everybody, for you too. Like, you know, with your, with your issues, with your socialized medicine, I hope that there's a solution that can fix that for you. So that this way you're not hurting because like I mentioned earlier, like healthcare is not a product. I feel like healthcare should be a human right and you shouldn't have to worry about getting sick and paying for things. Um, but like your experience is different. And, but like you said, it's poor management. They don't have, um, they don't have the structure correct, right? So how to fix that? I don't know. One day, one day I hope somebody gets it right though so that everybody else can mimic that and that we can all be healthy and safe and better. Um, honestly, I just want to farm in the middle of nowhere with some friends and solar panel and just show, yo, um, I'm about to go to an auction and buy a school bus and convert it into a home um, because one, that's badass. I don't really know how to do anything. I, I mean, I can paint. I'm good at painting. Um, but I want to buy a school bus, convert it into a house with solar panels, all that jazz, and just live off grid. Buy a huge plot of land and like all you guys can just come and, and chill. Argentina and the UK have the same system, not the same corruption. Ah, okay. That's, um, that's interesting. I don't know much about... Uh, Argentina's healthcare system. I'll have to read up on it because um, I'm sure, you know, just based off your experience, I'm sure that there's there's a bit of issues out there. Um, but I could, I, honestly, I could go on for days about our healthcare system here, um, how like dental health or dental insurance is separate from healthcare insurance as if your teeth are not part of your mouth, which is part of your body. Make it make sense. Um, but yeah, tiny homes are where it's at. And I, honestly, like my husband's like, I could never do that. And I'm like, oh, okay. Because me, I'm like, I want to do it. <laughs> so maybe one day, uh, once once we get like some money in the bank, we're going to go to an auction and buy one, uh, paint it, make it look cool. Maybe I'll paint like hippie flowers on it or something. One day I will do that too. Travel to friends and never worry about having a place to call home. Hell yeah. I really want to do, I want to do the school bus one and then buy like a trailer. Not like, not like a trailer trailer, but like make it like my dog's house, you know? Cause I've got two dogs. I have, um, I have a doggo Argentino mix and I have a, um, a, uh, Newfoundland mix and a cat. She's dumb and I hate her sometimes because she doesn't like me, but I want to make them like, I want to get a trailer to put on the back of the bus and like, that'll be their house so that like they have a place to chill. And then when we're driving, like it'll be like air conditioned and whatnot so that they don't have to, we don't have to worry about them getting like overheated. I have plans, no money to do said plans, but I have plans. So I'm going to write it down in a notebook. <laughs> I love giant dogs. I've always had Great Danes. I, uh, I, I've never had a Great Dane, uh, but my cousins did have, uh, or my cousins, my uncle, my aunt and uncle had a, a Great Dane named uh, Harvey Dangerfield. Um, he was crazy, but then they got another one after Harvey Dangerfield passed away, uh, and this new one is Merlin. That's his name, and he's a little bit smaller. Harvey Dangerfield was like 150 pounds. He was a chunky chunky great dane uh, and they also have a uh a newfie named evie who's doesn't have ha she doesn't have half of her bottom jaw it was a, a birth defect so her tongue just like hangs out of her mouth so cute um but yeah dogs uh big dogs eat a lot of food 
and I have a big dog and he eats a lot of food. Um, but I want them to have like their own like little space. And I got to like both my dogs. Now I used to have another dog who passed away. He was not a good listener. Uh, but both my dogs now I could probably let them off leash and they'd be like, they would listen and come back. Uh, but I need like acres of land. So if anybody has acres of land and wants to allow me to park a school bus on it, uh, please call me. I'm available 24 seven. I will answer my phone at 3 a.m. Um, I raised Danes for a while. Silas was a blue Dane that was giant. His mommy, Abby, was smaller, but she ate way too much food. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, the food man. The money and the food, it's it's insane with, with big dogs. Um, so I felt like that was a pretty good conversation to start off the Campfire Chronicles. And I do have a few more chapters for you guys from Disenchanted. So I'm going to read... Um, chapters from you know one section from Lily's story and then the next session from Samuel's story and then that'll be the end of the podcast and we can get to my hundred level challenge for zombies I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that once we get the the story time done tail Thursday right tail Thursday let me pull my handy dandy iPad which has the podcast up on it so much crap on my desk somebody come help me is this charging not charging well, I guess that answers my question huh there we go all right all right all right, all right. so where have we left off we left off whoops What in the world? What in tarnation? All right, let me pull up Disenchanted. So we left off at Lily's section. So um, why don't we jump right into it, huh? Move my mic over here. The present, July 2004. Where have you been? Bradley says from behind the island in the kitchen. Running? You didn't tell me you were going out. I wasn't aware that I needed to, Lily says, kicking her sneakers off against the heater. Is that a serious response to you going missing for three hours? <laughs> yeah, I guess it is. She hangs her jacket over the staircase landing. You can't do that, Lily. Why? Because my doctors recommend it? Because everyone thinks I'm a ticking time bomb counting down the days until I cause an earthquake or a volcanic eruption? Lily, that's not what I think of you. Bradley leans back against the counter. You know, <laughs> you were always bad at lying, Dad. He inhales and exhales before speaking again. It's not what I think, Lily. That's what the doctor on your case thinks. Save it. I can see it. I've seen it in you since you saw me have my first episode. You and all the other doctors walk on glass around me like anything and everything will set me off. Lily, Noah is the only friend I've had since Mom was killed. A crack bursts open in the ceiling above her head, sending bits of plaster down onto her shoulders. I've been confined to a house since then, been tested in ways that I'm sure aren't legal. Everyone's afraid of me here because all they've heard are the stories, the rumors that spread like a disease throughout this godforsaken town. The glass in the windows crack into spiderweb portraits. Bradley swallows, his stomach tightens in a twisted mess of knots. I need to leave. And then there's you. Lily pushes him deeper into the kitchen. Bradley backs towards the door leading to the backyard. My father, the man who's supposed to take care of me, the one who's one person who's supposed to stand up to fear when I can't will myself to do so. Lily, please, just shut up! Lily slams her fist into the window next to her father's head. She takes most of the door with her punch. When she pulls her fist back, the broken glass slices into her forearm. The pain clears the burning that anger brought along. She looks down at her arm and watches the blood force its way past the microscopic shards of glass embedded in her skin. She cradles her arm and shakes her head. You know, I depended on you. But when you absolutely needed to be there, you let fear win. I guess it's easier to fall into that rather than accepting your daughter as a freak. That is not true. He looks into her eyes and feels disgusted with himself. He wasn't lying, but... He wasn't exactly telling the truth. 
Sometimes it was easier to fall into some drunken stupor that most of the psychiatrists put him in. It was easier to believe his daughter had something severely wrong with her and that locking her up was the right thing to do. But right now, he wants nothing more than to apologize and tell her she's wrong and have her believe every word. He wants her to have a normal life. He wants her to go out and experience the world. He hates himself every day for keeping her locked up in this house, but the fear of losing her forever prevents him from changing his mind. Lily, I know it seems like I'm keeping you from everything, hiding you like some type of mistake, but I'm only doing this because I can't risk something bad happening to you. Lily laughs and holds up her arm. The blood drips down from jagged holes in her skin. Mission accomplished. Lily watches her blood drip into the bottom of the sink. The pain is refreshing. Anything other than anger made her feel closer to normal. The blood is darker at the jagged cuts from the glass in the window. She reaches and pulls a shard from her skin and another river of blood flows from her arm. Lily? Bradley's voice says from the other side of the bathroom door. Leave me alone, Dad. Her vision blurs for a second. She can feel her knees shake under her weight. Lily, please open the door. Let me look at your cuts. Leave me alone. Her eyelids sink until all she sees is the dull red light from the light bulbs burning above her bathroom mirror. She crashes to the tile floor in a heap. Lily? Bradley rams his shoulder into the door. The boom echoes throughout the house. He rams it again. Lily, open the door! She opens her eyes just enough to see the puddle of blood pushing outward from her body. She hums the lullaby her mother used to sing to Noah when she was younger. The words escaped her memory long ago, but the tune always stayed engraved in her mind. This is it. She smiles, letting the blood seep into her teeth. I'm finally done. I'm finally going to end in a bloody mess without hurting anyone else. Thank you, she says into the puddle. Bradley plants the ball of his foot into the door, and the door frame explodes into the bathroom. Lily! He slides onto the tile on his knees. He scoops his arm under her and runs down the stairs to the front door. Just let me go, Dad. Stop it, Lily. Bradley pulls the front door open the rest of the way with his foot and jumps the three steps to the gravel driveway. What the hell, Dad? Noah says, walking up the driveway. Noah, get in the car and hold a towel over your sister's arm. What happened now, Noah? Bradley lays Lily on the rear seat cushion. He climbs into the driver's seat and turns over the engine. Noah lifts her body up and lets her down onto his chest. Lily? He says, squeezing around the wounds on her arm. She opens her eyes and stares at her brother. Once she gets past his bulging gaze and flushed cheeks, she recognizes him. Noah? He squeezes her tighter on her arm. I'm sorry I screwed up your life so much. Stop it, Lily. You didn't. Liar. You can always tell when you're lying. Noah clenches his jaw and leans his head on top of hers. Please, Lily. We're almost to the hospital. He can feel the hot tears flood down his face into her hairline. We're going to get you fixed up. Keep talking, Lily, Bradley says from the front. We're almost there, sweetheart. Noah watches the evergreen trees fly by in a blur from the corner of his eyes. He hated himself for crying when his sister needed him. He was supposed to be strong for her, but her words scream in his head. I'm sorry I screwed your life up so much. He wasn't mad that she said it. He was mad that he felt that way. Somewhere under the layers he built, he was angry for losing his life to some freak thing with his sister. He was tired of starting over. He's exhausted. And he hates himself for feeling that way. He looks down at her arm again. Her features are relaxed like she's sleeping. Lily? She doesn't move. Lily? Bradley looks in the rearview mirror. Lily? She's not breathing. Bradley slams on the brakes and swerves to the side of the road. He climbs into the back seat with Noah and lays her flat on her back. Keep her head in neutral spine, he says. What the hell does that mean? We've got to do CPR, Noah. He watches his son's breathing quicking. Hey! He says, slapping him across the face. Snap out of it, Noah. Lily needs our help. Now. Noah grips Lily's shoulders and straightens out her body. Please, Lily, hold on. Please hold on. Please don't leave me. Samantha? A voice says. Samantha, honey. She opens her eyes to a blinding light. She coughs several times before speaking. Who? You're in the hospital, sweetheart, a nurse says, rubbing her shoulder. You hurt yourself. Hey, Samantha. Bradley says, gripping her hand. There she is. The doctor said you lost a lot of blood, but he was able to patch you up. Bradley smiles, which makes Lily cringe. Thank you, nurse. If you need anything, just press that call button. Bradley waits until the door shuts and then starts rubbing his temples. Jesus Christ, Lily. Why couldn't you just leave me there? His head shoots up to meet her sideways, Claire. Why on earth would you say that? Because it's what you think every day. It's why you keep me locked up wherever we move to. That's not true. 
Why else haven't I been allowed to leave the house then? She grinds her teeth until her jaw throbs in protest. Bradley chews on the inside of his cheek. The silence is thick and Lily knows it makes her father uncomfortable. Chicago was a mistake, Lily. He leans back in his chair. I'm sorry that I left you in the care of a complete psychopath. I made a promise when we left there that I wouldn't do that to you ever again. So now you keep me away from people locked up in a house in a town where the population is maybe five people every 10 miles. She says, looking at him out of the corner of her eye again. Bradley sighs and scoots to the edge of the chair. It's for your own good, Lily. <laughs> she shakes her head. Then you're just as bad as Dr. Stevenson and his crew. How could you say that? How could you say that, Lily? Because he was doing everything that you're doing now. The whole, it's for the greater good speech? Yeah, been there, heard that. I'm not torturing you like he was, so you think. Lily reaches for the stranger to the television. Bradley opens his mouth to speak, but she shakes her head and clicks the television on. He stands and walks out of the room without saying another word. He wasn't like Dr. Stevenson. He refused to believe that. Lily is dangerous. He's just trying to keep that a secret. No one can know what she's capable of. It's the only way of keeping the family safe. The Past. December, 1918. Margaret, he said. Her body was still. He clenched his throat and called to her again. He knew she was dead. No. He gripped her hand. Their temperatures were the same. Why am I still here, Samuel said. He rocked on his knees by her side. The room felt suffocating. Everything about their apartment was suffocating to him. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? He slammed his fist into the floor, but didn't feel the pain he was hoping for. Samuel stood over her and kissed her forehead. He knew he had to leave the apartment before the doctor came for his rounds. I'm so sorry I left. I'm so sorry, Margaret. He fished in his pocket for his key to the apartment and tossed it onto the nightstand. The streets of Boston were busy. The buzz of life was back as people made their way to work. Samuel tightened the scarf around his neck wound. He made sure it was covered before leaving the apartment. His mouth was dry. He wasn't sure if it was from whatever condition he developed or the fact that the one person that made his whole life have purpose was gone. Walter? He said. Walter, he will help me figure all this out. He pushed his way through the crowded streets toward the only friend he had left from the war. Walter walked with the assistance of a cane after he was sent home. Three gunshots shredded his left leg while they were in the trenches together. If it weren't for Samuel going against orders, he wouldn't have been able to marry his wife after returning from overseas. Walter! Samuel bangs on his door. Walter, I'm begging you, please open the door. The door swung open and Samuel collapsed into their foyer. Sam! Jesus! Mabel! Mabel, honey! Samuel looked up from the ground to see Walter's wife running down the hallway with a chair. Samuel! Sam, I need you to help me get you up, Walter said into his ear. On three. One, two, three. They pulled on each other and managed to get Samuel onto his feet before his ankles gave way and he fell into the chair. Thank you, Walt. He rubs his, rubbed his legs. Mabel, could you get us some hot water and a bottle of scotch? Of course, she said. Walter watched his wife down the hallway until she disappeared into the kitchen. All right, he said. You know you're my best friend, but I need you to be honest with me. Yes. Samuel let out a painful exhale. I promise. You're covered in blood. It's nine o'clock in the morning, he said, shaking his head. Did you murder someone, Sam? No. No, I didn't. All right. What happened? He reached for Samuel's peacoat buttons and undid them in one swift movement. I went to the market. I, I went the shortcut way, the one I always do. Margaret was getting worse. She wanted lilies. The only store that sold them was in the market. I was going to get her some medicine there as well, so I cut through the alley and someone did this. Samuel shrugged off his peacoat and pulled the collar of his shirt down along with the scarf. Walter's eyes widened and the color drained from his face. That looks deep. I died, Walter. He grabbed his friend by his shirt. The man in the alleyway slit my throat and took my wallet. I remember the smell. It was like the trenches over there. That god-awful copper smell. All I thought was that I let Margaret down and, oh God, Margaret, she, she died in my arms. Margaret's dead? Walter falls to his knees. I'm so sorry, Sam. Samuel let his head fall into his palms and sobbed. She's dead. I didn't even, I don't know why. Sam, breathe. 
Walter gripped his friend's shoulder. He examined the wound on his neck and shook his head. This looks like it's clotted, but it's deep. You must have lost a ton of blood. Mabel came back from the kitchen and nearly dropped the bottle of scotch. Walter, I'll take care. Of I'll take that from you, honey. He responded, grabbing the bottle from her. Can you go and grab the medical kit? Yes. Yes, that makes sense. Mabel ran to the bedroom around the corner. I'm going to sew this up to prevent an infection. It's going to hurt. I can't possibly feel more pain than I do right now, Samuel said, taking a swig of scotch and handing the bottle off. Do your worst. Samuel woke to a drunken spinning room. He downed three quarters of the scotch before he passed out. The stitches in his neck pulled uncomfortably when he sat up. A low murmur from outside the room caught his attention. He opened the crack, uh, the door cracked to see the three police officers standing with Mabel and Walter in the hallway. I think he tried to off himself or something. But I can tell you, officer, he did not kill his wife. Have you seen him since then, Walter? The policeman said. We need to speak with him. Is he under arrest? You will be if you are hiding him. Walter sighed and pushed his hair back with his hand. If I see him, I will bring him to you. The police officers tipped their hats and walked down the hallway. The click of their boots reverberated in Samuel's eardrums. Walter, we can't keep him here. Mabel whispered once the boot clicks disappeared. If they find out that we are harboring a murderer, there is no way Sam killed Margaret. He was just babbling nonsense before. He sounded downright crazy. Who wouldn't after their wife died? He threw his hands up in the air. That man loved Margaret more than anything. He would walk through fire for her. You saw them at our wedding. Mabel looked over in Samuel's direction and shook her head. I understand what you're saying, but the man said he was murdered in an alleyway and came back to life. Are you sure that the war and fight the fighting didn't give him shell shock syndrome? Mabel. Walter squeezed the bridge of his nose. He's my best friend. The only reason we got to be together sooner was because that man went back for me in the trenches. I could have just been another folded flag in someone's arms. Mabel nodded her head and wrapped her arms around herself. He didn't kill his wife. I do believe he was mugged. Badly. And maybe he's taking the blame out on himself. He pushed out a sigh and placed his hands on his hips. We'll talk to him in the morning when he's sobered up. Mabel looked back again at Samuel and let out a sigh. All right, she said and headed up the stairs. Samuel closed the door and slid down with his back against it. He knew they didn't believe him, and the only way to make them believe would be to show them. And that's what I'll do. <clears throat> Excuse me, my throat's getting dry. Sam, Walter said from the other side of the door. He knocked again with his free hand. Sam, I'm coming in. I've got breakfast. The door opened to Samuel hanging from a beam in the ceiling. The chair from the writing desk laid on its side underneath its feet. Sam! The breakfast tray crashed to the ground as Walter limped into the room. He stood the chair up and slipped the noose off Samuel's neck. Walter crumpled under the weight of Samuel's body. Sam, Jesus Christ, Mabel! Footsteps echoed in the house until Mabel ran into the room. Oh, Lord, she said, covering her mouth. Call the doctor! She nodded her head and ran down the hallway. Don't! Walter looked down at Samuel to see his eyes open. The color slowly returned to his face. He gripped Walter's arm and shook him out of his gawking. I told you. I'm not crazy. This is impossible. I was mugged in the alley and the guy slit my throat. You can't deny that you just saw me dead. Walter pressed his fingers into Samuel's jugular until they throbbed. Thirty seconds passed and still no thumping bumped back against his own heartbeat. He pushed himself out from under Samuel and slammed into the bedroom door. What are you? I've been trying to tell you what happened. Get out. Please, I've got nowhere to go. Get out. Samuel pushed himself from the floor. Walt, I know you are frightened by this, but I have nobody in my life right now. I'm begging you, please, don't touch me. If you don't get out of here, I'm calling the cops. Samuel let his hand fall to his side and nodded his head. He grabbed his jacket and wrapped his scarf around his neck wound. Walter backed himself into the corner of the room when he passed by. I'm sorry he said to Walter. He wasn't sure why, but he felt the need to. I'll go. Walter gawked at his friend, the one who dragged him through the trenches after being shot, the one who risked his life for him when everyone else said to leave him behind, but he couldn't see that now. He didn't know whether his friend was a monster or was the person that saved him from being another death overseas. His heart beat against his chest with such fervor he thought he was dying. Samuel stepped back in his direction and he grabbed the fire poker from behind him. Get back, or what? You'll kill me, Samuel said. 
Walter let out heaving breaths and pressed the tip of the fire poker into Samuel's chest. Please, just go. Samuel gripped the tip of the fire poker and pushed it away from his body. He nodded his head, attempted a smile, and sulked out the door. All the fighting in the war seemed pointless now. It wasn't the easiest thing leaving Margaret when he was shipped off. But not enlisting was cowardly. His father made sure to let him know that before he left him. There was so much death surrounding him in the trenches that even now the idea of bringing a walking dead man being a walking dead man seemed normal. He looked up at the Charleston Bridge in all its glory. It truly was spectacular to look at, but the bridge for Samuel was a way out. Maybe if the mugger in the alley couldn't finish the job, a plunge from that bridge would do it. And Samuel wanted nothing more than to end it all. He dragged his sluggish feet toward the forward to a stumbling jog. Salvation was so close. He could almost taste the death on the tip of his tongue. Samuel shoved the last few people out of his way. Most cursed to him, but he wouldn't stop until he was the tall at the tallest point of the bridge, where he could fall back into the arms of Margaret. He climbed the railing and balanced for a moment. Time froze in front of him. The Charles River was gorgeous in the slow rise of the sun. Samuel closed his eyes, letting the light burn through his dead nerves. Margaret. And he fell. And that is where I'm going to leave you guys. So that was a few chapters of Lily's, a few chapters of Samuel. Uh, for anybody who did download the book, I hope you're enjoying it as you, you get to read along. I'm going to keep just kind of picking up where we left off uh, next week on Thursday. Uh, but let me know what you think. I mean, I, I'm, o I'm always open to reviews or uh, whatever you want to do. We do have um, the book is available on Amazon. So, you know, if you if you like this story, if you want to hear more, by all means, leave a review. It feeds an author. Um, so I'm just going to leave a little note here so that this way I know where we left off so if you do have suggestions for Campfire Chronicles we have an email it's campfirechronicles at icloud.com and we also have a Facebook page um, I can post the link for that if you want to go follow us there um, I tend to post some information there when like things like when the podcast goes to a different platform or is available somewhere else, or if we're doing like a giveaway or an, a, a feature with a different author, um, I will post that there. And I keep it separate from my, um, my personal Facebook because um, I want people to, you know, associate Campfire Chronicles with Campfire Chronicles. Makes sense. Um, and also... Definitely go follow Cure Habitat. Um, they were the reason that I even did this. My my best friend Brittany was um, my main motivator, and she kind of brought this to fruition. So she's to thank for this. And Cure Habitat is on Twitch. They stream music. They stream games um, when they are not working ten hour days. So um, there's the link for the Facebook page, and then I can. Type in Cure Habitat for you. Habitat. And now we get to do the fun stuff. We get to play some zombies. So let me get zombies up here. Um, but on behalf of Cure Habitat, my name is Kelsey Garmandia, and thank you for stopping by the campfire tonight. So let's get some zombies running, huh? How about that? How about that?